0: Evening. And uh, like this morning, psalm, psalm 45, which is a royal wedding Psalm, this is certainly not a royal wedding Psalm, uh, but it's probably almost entirely messianic. Um, there is debate about whether this morning Psalm had a historical context into which it was written, and it probably did have. And uh, the same question is asked about this Psalm whether David, who wrote this Psalm, was specifically thinking of a situation uh, that he was expressing and explaining here. And that may well be the case, but it seems clearly also to be the case that he was saying more than he knew. And he was, uh, through the inspired word, uh, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he was was prophesying, he was... uh, uh, reaching forward uh, into a situation that he didn't know and he didn't understand and uh, as uh, a king and as a prophet in many ways he was uh, penning scripture and uh, uh, giving us the inspiration of God to this situation because normally the normal pattern for the Bible is that the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament that's the rule of thumb is that we we find quite difficult, the Old Testament quite difficult and uh, things that we don't understand. But usually it's made a bit clearer when we have the understanding of the New Testament and uh, the life and work of Jesus and the teaching of the New Testament. And that often sheds light on the Old. You know, We spent a number of months looking through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament and that keeps going back to the Old Testament but kind of unpacking it and explaining it and making it clearer for us and helping us to understand it. This is one of the exceptions to that. This is one of the sections of the Bible where the Old Testament sheds light on the New Testament because it's as if it's like uh, it's an open door into the mind of Jesus. It's as if Jesus on the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, those who heard that and those who knew that were able to see Well, that's from Psalm 22. And we go back to that. And as they did so, it opened up something to them that they previously wouldn't have known. It opened up to them some of the suffering, the mental anguish, and the personal suffering of Jesus that is unparalleled in the New Testament. We simply don't get a view of Jesus Christ, God's Son, in his mental anguish in the way that we do in this psalm. It truly is a door that is opened into the mind of God and the mind of Jesus. Remarkable at that level. Breathtaking. It it gives us, uh, it helps us to look into the suffering, into that kind of mysterious moment on the cross in a way that the cross itself and the the cross, um, as it's given to us in the different gospels, doesn't allow us to do. And so Jesus on the cross uh, cries this cry and unlocks his own mind to us uh, by pointing us through that cry to this psalm. And it's a remarkable psalm. It's it's really a remarkable prayer uh, as it unfolds and as it reveals uh, in a hugely mysterious and yet genuine way uh, the mind of Jesus Christ. It speaks to us about his... Unique relationship with the father he 's God the Son, and he 's in relationship with God the Father and yet there 's this mysterious darkness and, and division on the cross uh, in the atoning work of Jesus Christ for us uh, there's a it speaks about that relationship, but it also at some levels for us at least is a model uh, and an example for us. Of pray. You know, we all struggle to pray, don't we? We all struggle to understand prayer and to know how to pray. Well, here's Jesus praying. He's praying intimately to his Father. And it's at some level for us, it's an indication, it's a reminder to the kind of prayers that we can offer and the kind of things that are legitimate for us to do in prayer. Uh, and a reminder to us of the, the level of intensity that God wants us to have with him in prayer and not just that kind of shallow hello God, thank you for everything today and for all your goodness, forgive all my sins, amen. And breaks us into something that's just a little bit more uh, in our hearts and exposes our need and exposes his answers to us. So it does speak about deep suffering and it speaks also about blessing. I had a great quote (laughs) from a book and I didn't bring it with me. And it will not sound the same next week. It's so annoying when I do that. I had it with me. No, I'll not ask anyone to get it because they probably won't find it. But it was a great quote about suffering. Uh, and um, I was going to relate that from the beginning to then. So I've just told you something I'm not going to do. And so you're all hugely disappointed. I'm sorry. Uh, you just have to get used to that. But anyway, suffering. Uh, Christ here uh, undergoes great suffering and the cross and verses 1 to 21 of the psalm is really very clearly divided the first half of the psalm or the first 21 verses are very much about his suffering uh, and the intensity and the depth and the uniqueness of his suffering and then the second half of the psalm from verse 22 is really much more about his praise so it doesn't end in darkness and it's not just about suffering but we're reminded that Jesus Christ here, that there's no real, you know, That this morning we had a two-verse introduction, Psalm 45, and a two-verse conclusion. Nice and uh, literally, uh, in a, uh, a literary way, it was, you know, it was well-modeled and it was, uh, had the correct uh, elements to it, introduction, main core conclusion. This just bursts into this, it goes right to the crescendo. It goes right to the final act, right at the beginning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's that dramatic entrance, no introduction whatsoever. But we have the cry of all cries. There's been no cry like that ever since. There's been no cry before it. This is the most unique cry that was ever made in the history of cries. It's Jesus Christ on the cross, as, it's, as we're reminded in Ma- Matthew and Mark, that this is Christ on the crossing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I think I've said this to you before, probably several times. That Martin Luther um, uh, wanted to study this cry and to see if he could understand it. And he went into uh, solitude for three days without food and water uh, just to pray through this and to seek God's blessing and to seek God's wisdom on this cry. And he came out from. Three days of that intense uh, prayer and and wrestling with God as to the meaning of it said, God forsaken of God, he said. Who can understand it? And really, we we can't do more than that. Because that reality of divine aloneness can... Of God, this is God, remember that we know God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit in that perfect trinity of of love and union and closeness and trust and faithfulness together uh, through all eternity and we have a concept of one of the persons in the Trinity being alone, being forsaken, on the edge of despair. God God the Father, as it were, having departed from him. Just a remarkable cry if we begin to think about and consider the uniqueness of God and his nature and his character and his Trinitarian love and uh, his uh, perfections. And this is Jesus who had heard the cry earlier on or the the acclamation from heaven earlier on, this is my beloved son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. And now this desperate cry of forsakenness. And yet in these early verses, he says, my God... My God, my God, three times in that first two verses, he acknowledges not first his forsakenness, but acknowledges first that he still belongs. This God is still his God. Because remember, Jesus is the son of God, but Jesus is also son of man. And he has put himself in that place of trust and dependence, like a perfect human being trusting in his father but he does that in order to be our redeemer, to be our saviour, to be uh, our substitute. And as our sin bearer, he senses that forsakenness. That's the introduction to psalm. That's the psalm. Uh, that's the theme. That's what he's laying out, this amazing sense of forsakenness. So that's what the psalm is about in, in many ways, this sense of abandonment from God. Now, can we apply that to ourselves? Can we take these words and apply them to ourselves? Well, almost not. Almost not because as believers, we're in that place where we accept that Jesus has taken this forsakenness and abandonment so that we will not be utterly forsaken and abandoned uh, of the Father. But there's no doubt that we can feel forsaken and it can feel abandoned. And we can feel that God has uh, left us alone. And it is a great thing to remember that Christ knows and understands and has done what he has done so that we will not and are not and never at any point are forsaken of God. That is a fundamentally significant reality for us because there will be days in our lives when we feel Forsaken. We feel God is far away. We feel he's abandoned us. He's gone away. And we, we take courage from being, from being encouraged like Jesus to, to, what did he do? He cried heavenward. Okay, it was a cry of desperation, but he still cried heavenward. And he didn't say even, oh God. He said, my God. He, there was that position of trust there still. And there's time, that's what faith is actually really like. You know, we talk about faith and we think of people riding on white horses and going down the street and converting thousands of people and being strong. And that's not really great faith. Great faith is when you feel forsaken and you can still cry, my God, my God, and you still go to him in your struggles and your fears and your lostness. And it's to him that you go because you know that that is where your hope lies. And you know that that is uh, where there will be answer for you. And that's a great encouragement to us. And the early part of the psalm is very much one of crying out despair, a kind of trying to alleviate despair, then falling into despair again, alleviation of despair, and then answered prayer. It's a kind of, it goes up and down, or goes in and out, and it's very similar in many ways to our lives, because he moves on this utterly forsakenness, Utter sense of forsakenness, where he's crying out uh, almost relentlessly, and God doesn't doesn't appear to be answering him. Isn't answering him, and uh, then he, in verses three to five, he says, "Yet you're enthroned as the holy one; you're the praise of Israel." And what he does, what he tries to do here, is he recalls the experience of Israel and what how God had treated Israel in the past. And he he says, just as he speaks about God three times, three times in this little section, three to five, he talks about trust. You know, in your fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. Uh, In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. And he's clinging on to this, isn't it? That God has been faithful to his people. That there's this covenant nature of God that we've spoken a lot about in the last few weeks. About this covenant. You know. linking it to the marriages that I was speaking about this morning where people take vows and make a covenant together faithfully to be uh, exclusive in their relationship with one another. It's a covenant, it's a vow that they take. And uh, what Jesus is doing here as he speaks uh, through David the psalmist here is he's reminding us uh, that he needs to think about this God who is a covenant-keeping God in whom uh, they trusted and when they trusted, he was always faithful to them. It's, it's kind of like a drowning man gasping for air. And uh, he goes back to the knowledge of the word. And that's always important to us too. When you're struggling and when I'm struggling as Christians, it's a good place to go to see how God has worked faithfully through Scripture. The Bible is important to us. continues to be important. We keep opening the Bible. We keep going down there. We keep plowing there. keep finding this God who in history... You know, that's why it's important that we recognize the Bible. is not fable. The Bible's fable, we'll close the book, we'll go home. The Bible's history, the Bible's true, the Bible has contained God's actions with people faithfully through the century in this covenantal relationship, and we remind ourselves of that. Then uh, Jesus returns, uh, as we have his mind opened in verses 6 to 8, to despair. It says, Why, there's no let up for him? It's the Son of God. It's Jesus who walked on water, it's Jesus who turned the water into wine. And here he is, he says, look, I'm a worm. Not even a man, I'm scorned. And he recognizes not only as he feels forsaken of God, but here we have, um, he feels forsaken by his friends. Ah, Jesus didn't mind being forsaken by his friends. Of course he did. He's a perfect human being. He loved people and people loved him. But here on the cross, he's forsaken by his friends. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. You know, isn't that so... It's so like the crucifixion picture where there's people there mocking him and deriding him and even his closest friends have abandoned him and turned their backs. You know, they said, you know, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. But God uh, is not listening to his cry. There's no let up for him. And uh, there's this sense of being abandoned and, you know, it's good to know these things because there's very often in our lives where we're let down particularly by our fellow Christians uh, or let down by the people we love uh, or let down in our family situations or let down in our job situations or people treat us badly and we think nobody nobody really understands what I'm going through nobody has a clue in the simplicity of the psalm we're reminded that Jesus Christ absolutely knows and understands and appreciates uh, you know what does God know? Well, God knows exactly because he's had these cries been made to him. And not only then in this kind of seesawing to and froing uh, of God, uh, Jesus dealing with God and, and thinking of God's dealings with him and then going through his experiences there's God's forsakenness then he remembers how God treated his people then he feels forsaken uh, by other people and then In verses 9 to 11, he goes back to God again in this kind of seesawing and says, Lord, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even in my mother's breast, from from birth I was cast upon you. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. There's no one to help. See, all this ongoing uh, battling over trust. And he says, I've trusted you in the past. And he appeals to not God's dealings with his people, Israel, but God's dealing with himself in his personal life, in his uh, own experience. And he remembers these words of being well-pleased and he remembers God's favor and blessing on him. And he says, you know, don't be, help me. There's no one else. Again, if we're talking about a model for prayer, it's important in our lives that we don't just go back to a God of the Bible, which we might feel is a bit distant from us sometimes, an experience, but we can go back as Christians to the way God we have, been treated by God in the past, in our despairing times, we need to go back to him and remember how he has been there for us and what he has done for us and be assured of his love and the centrality of a past personal experience. If we have no past personal experience of God, it's going to be very difficult for us to keep going when things are difficult because we we look back on these times and we appeal to these times like Jesus did for deliverance do not be far from me I'm your child have pity on me he opens his soul and his prayer is different from ours because he alone then goes into the den of the enemy uh, on the cross you know uh, people talk about um, Jesus dying and being shot uh, and then uh, spending three days in the grave and then being resurrected as if these three days in the grave were his days in hell not so this on the cross is three hours of darkness on the cross, that's when he's in hell that's when he's experiencing our lostness at the end of that experience the unnatural darkness comes to an end and Jesus says, it is finished. And he gives himself over to death because that is part of his sacrificial work on our behalf. But he says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He returns so, his body remains in the grave, his soul returns to the father. But the hell he experiences is on the cross. So you've got that section from verses 12 to 21 where he uses pictures of Wild animals to express what he's going through on the, on the cross. You know, bulls of basin which were apparently supposed to be very particularly wild bulls uh, that were known uh, to the people of the time. Uh, roaring lions. Uh, he explains some of the physical sufferings that are unique to the cross and that David couldn't really have understood or known about if it was simply David speaking, poured out, his, you know, his heart is turned to wax, his bones are out of joint, his strength is dried up, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth, he is laid in the desk. Dogs are out, a band of evil men. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast my lot for gloat. Here's Christ nailed to the cross, naked to the cross. The embarrassment and the shame of people just staring at and gloating over him. He said he was the Savior. Let Moses, call, let him call him Moses and bring, Moses bring him down from the cross. And all of that is just an insight into the mind of Christ at that point as he experiences, not just the animosity and the Vigorous hatred of his enemies and of those around him, but the darkness symbolised, or the darkness of hell symbolised by these wild animals terrorised at a ridge of hell that is poured out against him, uh, where he does know the, not only the forsakenness of God but the full power of evil and darkness. You know, in nearly every film that's ever been made, every book that's ever been written, has got evil and good connotations, haven't they? And the best books are the books where good triumphs over evil like a good story. We all like a good ending. Well, this is this is where it comes from. The reality is that that is the reality of the universe in which we live. But that it's not an equal battle between good and evil. Is that Christ was always going to defeat the power of death and the grave and sin and evil on the cross. But the cost was remarkably great. And we should never forget that and we shouldn't simply just shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I follow Jesus. We should take time to think about uh, the Son of God, the reality of the eternal Son of God and the Trinity of God ripped apart in this incredibly deep way in order for us to be saved. You know, there's nothing, we, there's nothing I can say about verses 12 to 21. It's just horrendous. horrendous. Uh, the curtain is pulled back. You know they talk about the curtain being ripped in two and Christ died from top to bottom I mean our access was opened into the Holy of Holies. Well, I don't think I can pull back this curtain. I don't think we can understand what Jesus went through on the cross. Uh, even though we're given some words here that in his mercy and grace he tries to give us to express what he felt like You know, and and so uh, in our Scottish Christianity, we have so much of the stiff upper lip and everything's good and everything's okay and we'll muddle on by. And he is God's son. And he's expressing despair and humiliation and horror and lostness because he was doing it for us We really need to recognize that and uh, allow ourselves especially in his presence to express these things ourselves and our struggles and our depths and our difficulties and even at one level I think it wouldn't be a bad thing to uh, uh, in a guarded way with one another, at least with some that we're particularly close to, that we can uh, express our struggles because that is the beginning of healing for us. So, I just want to finish very briefly, just with that. And I will be brief because I know we want to be away sharp tonight because the fireworks are on the castle and uh, you know, we'll be closing roads and all that kind of stuff. So, if you've got a car and you're traveling, you might not want to. I'll not get too much inspiration, preach too much longer. But I just close. Uh, with uh, this wonderful triumphant end to uh, the psalm you know 22 to 31 and it's an absolutely essential part of the psalm is that it doesn't end in the forsakenness and in the darkness uh, but we know and we appreciate and we recognize that uh, god is the one who listens to him and uh, in verse 24, he says, "You know, I will declare your praise. Uh, you're the fearer. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Uh, we're coming round to praise and, and redemption. He has not despised nor ordained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from, but he has listened to his cry for help. It didn't seem like that, did it? And there's a sense in which he didn't answer him at the point of his greatest need on the cross. But God uh, did listen. And God did respond uh, in the recognition of what Jesus Christ had done. He had overcome evil and death. His sacrifice was pleasing and acceptable to God. And God raised him from the dead. Uh, The ultimate act of trust on Jesus' part as he moves and separates body and soul. And the father uh, resurrects the body and returns it to its soul, and God listened to him. And as a result, the people, his people, uh, will sing his praises. And it's great that that host. The first section is amazingly individual, and it's God, Jesus Christ, and his intense suffering, and his close relationship with the Father, and its brokenness, and the forsakenness, and the questions, and the doubts that come from that. The second section in, in praise is all about praising. With the people. And because he brings in salvation the people with him. He hasn't done it for himself. He's done it for his people. And so there's this great sense of which, you know, all the ends of the earth will remember uh, come the theme of my praise in the great assembly. All the rich will worship and generations for... There's this, his people. He's done it for his people. He's done it for you and me. He's done it because he loves us and because uh, through what he has done, we will live. And that is the great theme of God's praise is that God is, has done this for a people, for a people who will be redeemed, love greater love as no man than this. They lay down his life for his friends. And he's done this so that we can live and that we can overcome and that we can serve. Now we know that in this period, we mentioned this this morning, there are struggles and battles. Jesus first and Jesus second coming. We recognize that. We recognize the time of the already and the not yet. We recognize that he's yet to come and bring us home. But we recognize he's ascended and he's enthroned and he's sovereign. And that in this period, we share uh, with his sufferings. Never to his degree. But we suffer because we're Christians. We suffer because we have life. And because the life in us battles with the death that remains in us. And that's a struggle, sin and the grave. We suffer because we stand up and are Christians in a world that sometimes persecutes Christians or rejects them. And we suffer because we have a, an enemy, spiritual enemy, thrashes out and wants to destroy and defeat us. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the powerful trial painful trial you're suffering, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And we look forward to that. glory, and to see things much more clearly than we do now. Because the Bible makes clear we see only but through a glass darkly. And uh, I'm sure you feel that. I, I certainly feel it a great deal. It's a battle and it's a struggle. And we just, it's like, you know, uh, I've been wearing contact lenses for 30 years. And uh, sometimes they get really cloudy. And I can't see very well. And it's really frustrating. But even worse than that is I'm getting blinder by the day, so I'm not, I am not need contact lenses, I need glasses as well. And I'll need a binoculars, and I'll need telescopes. And uh, you just don't see that clearly. You get older. I hope spiritually, as we get older, actually, we, we should see better. Physically, we see less. <laughs> but I hope spiritually we see more. But even at the best, we only are seeing through a glass darkly. Uh, and uh, the Bible remains, but then we will see face-to-face. Then we will see him as he is and this will make much more sense to us and his suffering will be something that we will praise God for. But this is a reminder to us uh, of prayer and of what Jesus Christ has done for us and of the nature of our own prayers and the legitimacy uh, of asking why. You know? It's a good and a legitimate question and many times... We will not have the answer, but we will trust. But we are legitimately allowed to cry out to the living God and ask him why, because his son did that on the cross. And we can do that also. We are not know-it-alls, and we are not expected to know-it-all. We're expected to trust. And may it be that we can go from here and trust him. Amen. Father God, help us to trust you better. Help us to understand more clearly. Forgive us when the blindness that we have is not because we uh, are in a period when it's not clear, but sometimes the blindness is there because we choose not to see. We choose to look the other way. We choose to fill our vision with uh, uh, worldly things that will uh, uh, choke, as it were, our vision and and stop us seeing clearly and will uh, make our spiritual vision misty and blurred. But help us to see as clearly as we can by faith and to be transformed and to be seen clearer as time goes on. And uh, remind us that there will be many times that we are simply asked in all our ordinariness just to trust. And that you, as God on the cross, appealed uh, to that faith and that trust and we do so also tonight I ask you to help everyone here in the week in which they've entered to trust you and to put their faith in this great God, Jesus Christ who once for all died to defeat the power of the grave and who did so at great cost and Lord may we not take that for granted and may we not abuse it But encourage us and build us up and help us to praise you in the way that he was able to come round to praise you uh, for his resurrection and ascension and his victory uh, once for all. For Jesus' sake, amen.